you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to this week's roundtable on this Friday morning, January 24. We are on the fourth day of the impeachment trial in the Senate. And for Democratic impeachment managers seeking the conviction and ouster of President Donald Trump, the third day of presenting their case. They'll be followed by three days rebuttal by the president's defense team, after which senators will have 16 hours to ask their questions of both sides. And then, maybe, witnesses. What have we learned so far? Have Democrats made their case? Will new witnesses and evidence be allowed in the trial? Are there any cracks in Donald Trump's solid wall of Senate Republican support? Those questions, plus other important news of the day. For today's panel to debate and discuss, and joining us today, Ginger Gibson, political correspondent for Reuters. Hello, Ginger. Hi, thanks for having me back. Good to see you. Joe Williams, the senior editor U.S. News and World Report. Hello, Joe. Hi, uh, great to be here. Thank you. And Peter Nicholas, White House reporter for The Atlantic. Hi, Peter. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Okay, we have been, it's hard to tear ourselves away from the TV these days with all the uh, um, presentation of the Democratic side so far. Uh, let's just get an assessment from each of you. How have they done so far? Have they made their case? Peter? I think it's been an incredibly impressive performance. I don't know how many of your listeners saw Adam Schiff's clothes last night, but it was incredibly poignant and moving. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Jimmy Stewart's character in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, it was heartfelt, and it was uh, his message was essentially, we cannot keep this person in, this president in office uh, in perpetuity because he cannot be trusted to put uh, the, the country's interests before his own personal interests. And then he made an interesting argument. He said, you know this, you know this, in your hearts, you know this. I thought, uh, I thought that was interesting because in my conversations with Republican senators, Bill, and Republican lawmakers, what I hear from them off, off the record is this behavior, this, this president's dealings with Zelensky was not appropriate. It was really, you don't want a president doing this kind of thing. So I think he was appealing to a sentiment that's deep uh, within the party, even if they're not going to say it publicly. And by the way, at the end of this roundtable podcast, we're going to play for all of you, uh, those of you who might have missed it, the closing most of the closing statement of uh, Congressman Schiff last night. So, Ginger, um, there was a lot of repetition, which some people mentioned, maybe necessarily, but what was your take on the job so far? Well, the repetition, I think, is not a problem because most people are at work or doing their kids' homework or eating dinner through most of this process, right? So they're not sitting watching a marathon of uh, hearing a testimony or, or presentations in this in this process. But I have to say, I, I agree uh, with Peter. I, I just from the other side, you know, from a from a campaign reporter, um, I don't think that the public is seeing this as a game changer. I don't think that they're being persuaded. Um, I think people. People have mostly made their minds up at this point, um, and I and it's going to be very hard. Uh, I think you won't change anyone's mind unless a senator changes their mind, and I don't see any sign that publicly a senator is going to change their mind. Uh, Joe, one thing that I found, um, well, first of all, your your general take. We've seen two days. We've seen all the impeachment managers, um, and the first day was kind of the overall case. Yesterday was impeachment article one. Today, they're going to focus on impeachment article two and wrap up. Yeah. Well, my general take is this has got to be like any AV geek in high school <laughs> right now has something to aspire to because the different kinds of presentations, <laughs> the multimedia that they integrated, the clips, the video clips, the photos, the statements, all this stuff. It's the case has been overwhelming if in, in every sense of the word, like overwhelming in the fact that the presentation has been very 
robust and and they've had a lot of stuff to present and the case is overwhelming but it also has been overwhelming in the fact that you've got like marathon sessions going from midday to late in the night uh to ginger's point not a lot of people have the t- have the luxury to tune in and mitch o'connell kind of wants it that way uh the, the the trial was set up very deliberately to try to keep uh ongoing attention at a minimum but at the same time you do have very powerful moments breaking through, like you mentioned with uh, Adam mm-hmm. Schiff. You do have this leading every morning news show. Uh, so I think uh, people are getting a sense of this. Uh, is it a game changer? That is hard to see. I mean, you did have Republican senators, including Lindsey Graham, saying, hey, they did a really nice job. I'm going to go tell the White House how nice a job they did and what the White House needs to do to correct course and and circumvent some of these arguments. So, um would, would we all agree that listening to the first two days, the facts of the case are pretty much not in dispute? The only question is, is it worth throwing him out of office? I, I would agree. And if you look at the... I, mean, I thought they yeah. really established the facts that he made the call, he did it for this reason, and he obstructed the Congress. I think the facts are pretty indisputable. Uh, One thing, I was talking to Mark Meadows, who's part of the president's uh, legal team, in a sense, uh, advising the president, a Republican congressman from North Carolina. I was talking to him yesterday in the Capitol. And head of the Freedom Caucus. And what he was saying is, well, the president was trying to stop corruption, that uh, what Joe Biden and Hunter Biden uh, were doing were, were, were was problematic. President intervened and tried to get to the bottom of that. But I think the Democrats came back with a very powerful rebuttal and counter argument, anticipating what the Republican, uh, what the president's lawyers will argue uh, over the weekend when when they said, look, in 2017 and 2018, before Joe Biden entered the race, the aid to Ukraine flowed. This president supplied the aid. So, you know, obviously there was a political motive here. Obviously there was a self-interested motive. I thought that was a powerful argument. And it really does. I'm not sure there's much of a rebuttal coming from the president's camp on that. So, Ginger, um, Joe mentioned uh, the use of the, uh, the props, right? The, the, the slides and the audio, the video. I must say I really perked up when I saw uh, Jerry Nadler uh, pull some video way back from two of the president's defense team making the case for Democrats, it seems, that you don't have to commit a crime to be impeached. Those two people, of course, were Alan Dershowitz and Lindsey Graham appearing full screen in front of the U.S. Senate. Here they are. Another who comes to mind is Professor Alan Dershowitz, at least Alan Dershowitz in 1998. Back then... Here is what he had what he had to say about impeachment for abuse of power. It certainly doesn't have to be a crime if you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of president and who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty. You don't need a technical crime. Mm-hmm. Then House manager Lindsey Graham, who in President Clinton's trial flatly rejected the notion that impeachable offenses are limited to violations of established law. Here is what he said. What's a high crime? How about if an important person hurts somebody of low means? I think that's what they meant by high crimes. Doesn't even have to be a crime. Doesn't have to be a crime. <laughs> uh, you've got to know that they were squirming in their seats. I mean, we couldn't see them, but just were they squirming? Huh? I mean, I'm not sure. Really? I'm not, I mean, I think that. We live in an era where um, what People you lie. might call hypocrisy, <laughs> oh. uh, they call different circumstances. Um, and I think that um, we don't need a logical progression uh, in, in the public arena at this point, or at least they don't think they do, uh, to arrive at their position. I mean, I think one of the important things to remember in this conversation is that we haven't seen the president's case really presented yet. Um, that is coming. Uh, we are going to see that. Um, so far, it's just been a lot of like, no, 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 you're wrong, and not a lot of uh, substance. We expect there to be more substance. Um, and and well, we, okay, it appeared they were anticipating. Do you expect there to be substance from the president's defense team? We didn't see any on day one. I think there's going to be constitutional arguments. I think there's going to be legal theory. And I think there's going to be constitutional legal theory that aren't outside of the norm of some 
academic debate, right? Like, I think that if we give them credit, there are other academics, there are people who are removed from this process who are not fans of Trump, who would agree with some of the constitutional arguments. And and I think that's what we're going to hear. I think you're also going to hear a lot of process arguments. Oh, um, yeah. I think they're going to attack the process. They're going to say it was unfair to the president. They're going to say his lawyers weren't given a chance to rebut and counter and cross-examine witnesses uh, during 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 the proceedings. So I think there's going to be a heavy emphasis on that. And I think the which, basic which, facts are really hard to contest. Which has been their defense so far on yeah. the process. But so, Joe, on the, on the use of this media, it, it is somewhat, wouldn't you agree, embarrassing when you have the very people who are making the case that there was no crime committed? Well, I think she is making the opposite case. Well, and, and I think that that hypocrisy is like never out of style in Washington. I mean, it's always a thing. And, you know, I, I think at this point, if Lindsey Graham is not squirming or hasn't been squirming in a seat, the very man who who sat in front of an editorial board at U.S. U.S. News and World Report some two and a half years ago, who said Donald Trump was a danger to democracy. I mean, you can't get much more beyond that. I mean, once you've crossed that Rubicon, seeing yourself on the screen in front of your fellow senators really probably isn't that much of a big deal. Yeah. Well, the other thing uh, is that, uh, and Peter Baker has an excellent piece on the front page of the New York Times this morning, that the witnesses, there's already one big witness that's been in front of the Senate, and that is Donald Trump himself. When you have the videos of the president saying, China, get at it. Come on, or Russia, bring it on. Go after those 30,000 emails. Um, well, and I think that's going to be really difficult to defend, even in a law and process argument, right? I mean, we do have, we, you know, there is a, a constitutional argument that's going to be made. There is a law and process argument that's going to be made. But it reminds me of the old adage from court reporting. If you've got the facts, argue the law. And if you've yeah. got the law, argue the facts. I and mean, it's going to be it's going to be an empty argument that's going to be largely theoretical. I don't, ex I don't expect a lot of, of, of sub substance in the president's case, but I could be wrong. Just one, one more piece to that. If yep. you don't have the facts and you don't have the law, if, if you don't pound the facts, you don't pound the law, then you pound the table. <laughs> and, and understand who you're arguing to. I mean, I think that's another key here, right? Um, you talk, Peter, about what senators are saying privately and, and what appeals might be made to them. Um, but Trump has uh, a desire and in, in, an intuitive ability to argue to the people in a way um, that he can be compelling. And that's what he wants. He wants the argument that's going to resonate with voters. Um, and he thinks that why, you know, um, sure, maybe someone is uh, giving threats to the senators, but um, what is compelling most is their is their electorate. Uh, and if you can get their electorate with with you, then then you have a much easier time of keeping the senators with you. I, think, I, keep, I keep thinking that the electorate probably is overblown in some in some aspects, mostly because you are talking about a hardcore 30 percent that will leave. Donald Trump never, like no matter what, they're ride or die with this president. Right. However, you are talking about a perhaps as much of a third in the middle who are saying, wait a minute, do I really want this guy to be commander in chief? Uh, there is an argument to be made that the Democrats are playing to that third and that that third could be substantial and could be impactful should their argument land like they think it will. Of course, the question is maybe will that third have any influence on 53 Republican senators. But I don't think that's I don't think that's the case here. I mean, I, I think that the, the result is probably baked in. I mean, we all pretty much agree in the Washington establishment that this is not going to go the Democrats way when the vote comes up in the Senate. And if it does, it's probably going to be some way to maneuver around kind of the uncomfortable well, facts. But I think that that we're talking about the 2020 election writ large. That, on, that may be a factor well, as well. On that point. Do you believe, any one of you, is there anything that we could hear in this trial that would change what we expect to be the outcome of it? I really don't think so. I think it's just so baked in. Uh, the Republicans are so concerned about their base. Yeah. Understand that Trump controls his party, leads his party, and that uh, he's the heart and soul and source of energy within it. So I, I don't really foresee defections. I do think that uh, some of the centrist Republican senators, for example, Susan Collins, might be somewhat vulnerable in how she handles herself during this impeachment process. I mean, in, in terms of uh, maybe not voting for witnesses or voting to acquit, how will people in Maine feel about that? I so, went to Maine and I talked to Maine voters, yes. and I will tell you that I don't see a path to re-election for her if she doesn't vote to acquit. Um, overwhelmingly, every Republican I talk to 
just said, if she votes to remove the president, I won't vote for her. Um, and, and they have a second choice mm-hmm. vote. Um, mm-hmm. And so there maybe she ends up in a Can second choice ballot. Can she get reelected if she votes to acquit? I, I don't know that she can. I mean, my take... Either way. Yeah, right? I mean, I don't... My, I, voting to acquit, I think, would be the end of her Senate uh, term. I just... I, I can't see her getting reelected. What about... And voting to keep him in office? And, I, I, uh, that might save her. Yeah. Just... I, mean, I mean, there was a lot of sort of independent voters who felt like she... That the process was just a waste of time, right? Yeah. And so you could see a scenario, I think, where she gets to November and those folks don't really care about it anymore and were removed enough, but it's going to be a problem for her. One thing that uh, it's interesting what you're saying, I heard two comments this week. Mike Murphy, Republican yeah. strategist, said that one Republican senator told him there would be 30 votes to remove among the Republicans to remove Donald Trump from office if it were a private vote. Well, that- uh, and then the other one is, to your point, was uh, CBS News reported last night that Republicans, some Republican senators said if any Republican senator votes to remove him from office, his or her head would be on a pike. But that's that's the whole issue. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. Right. You know, I talked to uh, Steve Scalise, a Republican um, House whip from uh, Louisiana, and I asked him, was the president's phone call to Zelensky perfectly, perfectly proper? Was it appropriate? And he wouldn't answer the question. And I've seen Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, ask that question. He won't answer it either. And I think it's because they know they don't want to validate this kind of behavior. Uh, but they just can't seem to act on it publicly because they know the base is with Trump. Well, and the head will be on a pike and a president tweet will go, a presidential yeah. tweet will go out. And the next thing you know, they're persona non grata. They're not getting campaign funds. They're not getting uh, visits by the president. And it all becomes cannibal. It, it, to me, it's cannibalistic. I mean, and one of the things, one of the arguments that that I wonder whether the Repub- the Democrats are making openly or in some capacity is, look, you guys are not going to be in charge forever. There will be a Democratic president. That Democratic president may happen in 10 months, 12 months. I mean, the Senate certainly is in play um, because of this vote. You will no longer be in charge. And if that happens, what safeguards are left for a Democratic president to run roughshod over you? I mean, we've seen that in California. We're seeing it to some degree in Virginia. So, you know, you will reap what you sow, be very careful about it, but the short-term loss may be overwhelming a longer-term gain. So before we move on, there's pardon me, one other issue that will come up uh, for a vote, not at the beginning as Democrats wanted, but Mitch McConnell has kind of sort of promised that there'll be an opportunity to vote on allowing the introduction allowing the presence of new witnesses and allowing the introduction of new documents that have come forward since the House impeachment hearings. CBS News last night showed 72% of the American people support hearing from witnesses. On Crossfire, way back in the Clinton days, Mitch McConnell told me and Pat Buchanan he totally supported whatever the House managers wanted to do, including live witnesses. Of course, that was then, this is now, uh, like Lindsey Graham and Alan Dershowitz. Do you think that we're going to hear from witnesses? What's around the table, Ginger? I would be surprised if we hear from witnesses. Really? I just don't see a path for it at this point. Um, I think McConnell wants this over with. I think the, the, the best way to protect his vulnerable members is to make this a distant memory by the time they get to November. And uh, the more distant, the better. Yeah. Democrats only need four votes, Joe, for witnesses. Stranger things have happened. I mean, conventional wisdom says that that's absolutely correct. We will probably will not hear from witnesses. But the thing, it occurred to me some some time ago that the things that that wreck most promising presidencies or most promising paths to anything are the things that you don't expect. There's so much out there that we don't know. And there may be an explosive revelation that could compel witnesses in the next 72 hours. Likely, not highly not likely, but possible. Peter, some people read the Democrats' first two days as basically being nothing but a pitch for why you need to hear from the from witnesses. Do you well, think we will? I don't think we will. I think um, McConnell's control of the party is strong enough, and I think he's demonstrated it that there probably won't be witnesses. But I wondered, I worry about the precedent, Bill, and in the sense that um, you know, if they're 
if there are future impeachment proceedings, does this mean, you know, and, and the Republicans find that they're on the wrong side of this again, or Democrats find they're on the wrong side of this, you know, they'll, there's no precedent for no witnesses. And I think that the public suffers. There's a, a paucity of information. I mean, we need to hear from Mick Mulvaney. We need to hear from John Bolton. They have firsthand information about the president's thinking here. And, and that's been uh, depri- denied to us. As a result, there are huge gaps in this whole story that only witnesses can really fill. So I think that the public suffers. And, and I do believe, again, that the person who made that argument uh, the most compellingly was the lead uh, impeachment manager, Adam Schiff, in his opening remarks to the Senate. You will hear from witnesses who have not yet testified, like John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney. And if you can believe the president's words last month, you will also hear from Secretary Pompeo. You will hear their testimony at the same time as the American people. That is, if you allow it, if we have a fair trial. Dramatic pause, if you allow it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, believe it or not, there is uh, other news happening that uh, we might be able to to touch on. It's hard to move away from the trial, Uh, but we'll do so here. uh, A quick break from uh, our panel um, and um, Ginger Gibson, Joe Williams, and Peter Nicholas. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's roundtable brought to you by the American International Association of Firefighters. Those good men and women of the Firefighters Union, 320,000 strong professional firefighters and paramedics across the United States and Canada under the leadership of President Harold Schaidberger. They're on the front lines protecting American families every day. And tragically, we saw three of them on the front lines in Australia. Three American firefighters lose their lives this week battling the wildfires in Australia. We salute the uh, firefighters of America and Canada and worldwide. Thank them for their great work. Thank them for keeping us safe. And we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at IAFF.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. All right, it is the uh, Bill Press Pod, and uh, this week's roundtable with Peter Nichols, Ginger Gibson, and Joe Williams. And oh my God, this was a story that would be taking uh, the front pages and occupying all the uh, evening news if were it not for the impeachment trial. And it's Jeff Bezos, the New York Times today. Hot love. Tabloids <laughs> embrace the new Bezos. Uh, and the story, of course, popped this week that... Um, it appears that the prince of Saudi Arabia uh, hacked into Bezos's phone uh, to get some information about his love affair with uh, Suarez, Linda Suarez, I believe, whatever, uh, his new girlfriend. Uh, and uh, he's, Bezos suspected 
that the Saudis were going after him because uh, the Washington Post published uh, Jamal Khashoggi's Abeds, and they have run a lot of stories about the role of MBS in the murder of Khashoggi. And they were getting even with Bezos, and he put an investigative reporter, investigator onto it, and apparently, very closely proves that in fact MBS was behind this. What's this all mean? Where does it go? It's remarkable, really, when you think about it, that um, that we have a current state where um, one of our most leading business leaders in the country um, is basically under attack from a foreign nation. Um, and, and one, uh, there's so much else going on, we're barely paying attention. And two, um, the, the State Department, uh, the president, uh, we're not hearing from them and we're not expecting them to, right? Um, and this is this is, uh, this is not an ally of the president, so we were not surprised that he didn't come out and just um, you know denounce this. His actions and um, and so uh, maybe it's every man for himself in America now. If you're if you're engaged in uh, the potential of international espionage against you, I well, guess Peter, if he didn't condemn um, the prince for murdering Khashoggi, he's not going to condemn him for hacking Bezos's phone. But he believes that Saudi Arabia is the linchpin of any kind of Middle East peace deal. He wants Saudi Arabia's wealth in terms of you know he wants Saudi Arabia to buy U.S. weapons. He wants Saudi Arabia. Uh, he wants oil prices that are um, attractive to the American public. But I think it shows in this hacking of Bezos's phone, what it illustrates is that Saudi Arabia maybe isn't the ally, the reliable ally that Donald Trump thinks he thinks it is. And that this isn't, you know, this is uh, a nation whose interests and ours might not always be aligned. And the president uh, has tried to court um, Saudi Arabia. It was the first overseas trip he made was to, to Riyadh. And I think what this incident shows is that um, our, the interests of these two countries, uh, United States, Saudi Arabia, might not, not be uh, together. And Joe, this was a WhatsApp message that be, to Bezos' phone, which should be a warning to all of us. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> <laughs> Encrypt your WhatsApp. Don't send messages to strange foreign princes who uh, you meet at wealth, you know, wealthy uh, confabs. Um, it also strikes me that, that, yeah, I mean, to Peter's point, this, this is a, a, a bright line that, that it keeps getting crossed, uh, with this president, but Saudi Arabia, they're not really that much of an ally, but it also reminds me that, that in this world that we're in right now, it's kind of like the MC Escher drawing, you know, where every people are going down the stairs and up the stairs at the same time, everything leads back to the white house. Everything leads back to Trump. No matter which staircase you go down, a billionaire, a U.S. billionaire gets hacked, um, because of a revenge uh, plot, because the billionaire's paper was was employ, employed a, a Saudi dissident who called things out, and, and President Trump uh, didn't condemn the murder. It just all seems kind of internecine, and I kind of wonder what that says about where we are and the fact that we're allowing kind of state, you know, asymmetrical warfare or non-conventional means to 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 attack americans and and it's kind of outrageous on a couple of levels but then we think about the you know the attack against the uh iranian general that was kind of a stateless you know mm -hmm. affair and also think about trump as a negotiator he views himself as a negotiator he views everything as a negotiation it's all transactional all transactional so what are we are, are this just collateral damage in a negotiation, um, and and does he get, as Peter said, something else that he wants at the end of the day by not weighing in on something else? Uh, you know, and it's mm -hmm. it's the way he behaves in all negotiations. Well, that's exactly right, Ginger, and th this has been his behavior throughout. So in China, he's not denouncing human rights abuses or treatment of the Uyghurs because he wants a trade deal. And with North Korea, uh, well, same, same thing. thing with North Korea. Yeah, human not, rights are completely off human the table. rights are off the table because he wants a, a deal on atomic weapons. So we've seen he you're absolutely right. He's a negotiator. He's transactional. And we're seeing it play out in Saudi Arabia and all across the uh, all across the world. Well, and two also of those in Saudi Arabia, have, he gets a twofer because he gets revenge against Bezos, who he, he who Trump has a personal grudge against and a, and a chit for the Saudis for later. Right. Uh, two other things we got to get to before we take a break, which is one of them is. Uh, another story that would have made a lot of headlines and gotten a lot of attention, uh, that the president, while he was in Davos, gave a little news conference, and he was asked about the fact that originally the Pentagon told us, oh, the um, Iranians bombed that, um, the base in Iraq, but there were no Americans uh, hurt at all uh, and no Americans killed. 
And then we find out there were several Americans who suffered serious traumatic brain injuries and were flown to a hospital, I think, in Germany or whatever. Uh, The president was asked about that. Um, Here he is with a stunning um, take on it. Initially, you said repeatedly to Americans um, that after Iran retaliated for the Soleimani strike, no Americans were injured. We now know at least 11 U.S. servicemen were airlifted from Iraq. Can you explain the discrepancy? No, uh, I heard that they had headaches and a couple of other things, but I would say, uh, and I can report, it is not very serious. So you don't not consider very potential traumatic brain injuries serious? No, I don't consider them very serious injuries relative to other injuries that I've seen. Just a headache. <laughs> what are we worried about? So who I just can, who can touch that. What can you say? Right? I mean, Jesus. Well, his credibility is an issue in in, in a foreign in, in any kind of international crisis. We need a president who is going to level with the American people, who's credible, who we trust. And this is this is a consequence of him having treaded his own credibility through what the Washington Post documents is fifteen thousand misstatements. Uh, since the beginning of his presidency. We can't really trust him. We can't just to tell us the truth of what happened when Iran uh, uh, aimed missiles at that base. And what's wrong with saying, yes, some Americans suffered serious brain injury? I mean, that doesn't... It, it makes us look weak to the enemy. We we said that there were nobody hurt, and, and I'm... Mm. If we can, if we admit that somebody was hurt, Iran wins. Also, his his image, the entire time he's been in the public sphere has been absolutes, right? He has to be all of something. He's never a little sorry. He's never made a partial mistake. He never regrets or wishes he had done anything different. He views those as weaknesses. and He thinks that um, it would damage his image or his approach. So uh, not just in America, but internationally, if he admits that Iran hurt anyone and then he didn't do anything in response, he sees that as damaging uh, his ability to do uh, international uh, affairs. And I, I think that that's consistent with everything he's done uh, so far. So meanwhile, there this is 2020 and there is a presidential primary taking place and a, and a general election before the end of the year. Uh, just touching briefly on what is the status you guys are all on the road, or at least covering it every day. What is the status you see of the Democratic primary so far? Has it boiled down to which some people are saying Bernie versus Joe and everybody else is out of the running? I think that we're going to see um, a race to, to Iowa. We have 10 days as of this taping until the Iowa caucuses. Um, I think that Biden has been consistent. Um, he has consistently uh, held a, a place in the polls. He got endorsed Friday morning by Chet Culver, uh, the former Democratic governor of Iowa. He now has both of the two most recent Democratic governors of Iowa. Um, most of uh, the state endorsers. Uh, I, I think that um, it's, you know, we keep saying it's his to lose. There's no sign that he's wavering. Uh, Bernie is trying. I but, think he's consolidating. But Bernie's got the ground troops in Iowa, which is what it takes in a caucus. I have no doubt that Biden has built a campaign infrastructure. Um, and I would expect both of them to have precinct caps in, in all 1,648 precincts by the time we get to Monday. Um, so I, I think that that um, and I also think I had a, a Democratic strategist who ran a presidential campaign a few cycles ago uh, remark that uh, in the end, uh, Repu- Democrats like to flirt with the new or the flashy or the interesting or the different or the outside the box. But at the end of the day, they come back home to something that feels safe, that feels comfortable, that they feel like is is going to be there for them and that they feel like is going to be able to beat Trump. Um, and I think we're seeing that in how Biden's numbers are doing. I think that there's sort of we, we looked at his the Reuters Ipsos poll out today, uh, he's over 30, and and we see the number of undecideds shrinking. I think they're going to Biden. It looks like it's his um, trajectory at this point to keep going. Mm-hmm. You agree? Nope. Uh, it's hard to see anything different. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, the, the Biden brand is the brand that people trust. It's a return to normal. It's a return to established principles. It's a return to where we used to be. Groundbreaking not a time for it this time. But Peter, the New York Times said, I don't like either. We don't like either of those. We'll take Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Bill, because that's what I wanted to talk about. Uh, and I think that that New York Times endorsement splitting the difference really illustrates 
the divisions and how people really haven't settled on a candidate, that how fluid this field is. I, I, I agree with my colleagues uh, here that uh, it seems like Biden's race to lose, but I'll note that he's doing well nationally, but he doesn't seem to be doing quite as well in Iowa, New Hampshire. It's because uh, the, the buyers just don't seem to be all that excited about him at, at, at some deep fundamental level. He hasn't really captured and peaked the Democrats' imagination the way Barack Obama did, I think, in 2008. And he's the Toyota Camry of the yeah, twenty twenty. Exactly right. And I think the New York Times editorial reflects that. If your car's on fire, a Toyota Camry sounds really great, right? Yeah. Um, Start in the morning. (laughs) I I think to your point that it shows the division. I think the New York Times, um, if you look at the makeup of their editorial board of who's making these decisions, you see a division between the sort of let's stay the road, let's go back to calm, and the young, let's try, burn everything down and start over. And they admitted that. That's why they did one of each. Split the baby. And that's yeah. why they tried to split the baby. Um, and I, you know, I think that it's the voters are that way. But when I'm out on the road and I'm talking to people, I hear so often, I just want calm. I just want to not be worried anymore. Um, and I think that so, it is not the moment for a let's burn everything down, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren candidate. I'm sorry, but is that going to beat Donald Trump? Like for so many Democrats, what this race is about, the litmus test is, can you beat Donald Trump? Why don't, you ask, why don't you ask Senator Christine O'Donnell how being the candidate that riled up your base and got everyone excited uh, against a candidate that was boring and quiet and kind of nerdy and bald and not very tall worked out? It didn't. She's not the senator. Chris Coons is. I mean, we heard this argument from the Tea Party over and over again that they needed the base rallying candidates that were going to get everyone excited and get them to turn out. And it didn't work for them ever. If the party backs into a Democratic nominee, if it's just, you know, who's standing at the end of this process, I think that the party is weakened when it comes to Donald Trump, who, uh, you know, say what you want, but uh, the economy is doing well. Stock market is doing quite well. I mean, he has a record to run on. And, and you know, uh, I think the Democrats have to be excited about that. Uh, minority voters have to turn out. And if that doesn't happen, I think we could see a repetition of 2016. But Trump is probably the number one factor in getting Democrats to turn out. I would say almost no matter who the candidate is. But that's a general election discussion, which we will have plenty of time for once we get through the uh, through the primary. And I guess we will leave Hillary Clinton's comments about Bernie Sanders to, on the sideline that we don't even have to talk about. Uh, <laughs> but there certainly are some hard feelings left from 2016. Feisty, feisty. Uh, yeah, Can we right. talk about it, please? <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> quick comment. Just quick comment. I loved Hillary's tweet where she said, I thought you all wanted me to be authentic and honest. I gave you my honest feelings about Bernie Sanders. I don't like the guy. And there's all this backlash. I mean, you know, she can't win. She can't win for losing. As we said in when I was studying Latin, cui bono. I mean, to what effect? To what good was that? Ginger, just I think, stink bomb. Huh? I think that it's... Um, we're, I think that it's we're seeing the signs that Bernie Sanders made very few friends in the United States Senate, that he engaged in very little policy when he and as a, as a chairman or as a ranking member on committees, um, and that when push comes to shove, uh, Republicans had a lot of a regret that they didn't rally behind Ted Cruz because they didn't like the guy um, to try to stop Donald Trump. And the Democrats are looking at that and the potential to say, we don't want Bernie Sanders. We think he's going to cost us the election. Now's the time to start rallying behind someone else. And that may her comments may be the first sign that that's happening. But she didn't rally behind anyone else. She just dumped on Bernie. Absolutely. So well, I yeah. mean, what good is having a shotgun if you're not going to use it? I mean, <laughs> you know, the buckshot was in there and she was itch- had an itchy trigger finger. I mean, to what effect? Probably not very much right. other than to get people talking about Hillary Clinton. All right. How about a favorite story for the week before we wrap up here? Uh, there's always something that uh, either catches, catches your attention, a, a serious attention, or you just laugh about it. Um Ginger, you want to start? I want to talk about a witch hunt. Oh. Talk about a hoax. Yes. I want to talk about an unfair police investigation, potentially. I'm going to talk about Gritty, the oh, mascot <laughs> of the Philadelphia Flyers, oh, yes. who has been accused, and I cannot bring myself to believe that it could possibly be true. Are you a Philadelphian? 
I live there. I'm a Flyers fan. Um, of hitting a child. Um, yeah, it is. I, it has been quite the controversy uh, in Philadelphia, and it is maybe the most Philadelphia story. I was going to say that's peak Philly, right it's there. Peak yeah. Philly. Um, and I recommend reading the Philadelphia Inquirer's coverage of it, in part because they continue to cover this controversy as if Gritty were a person and not <laughs> a character with an actual human inside of it. Um, it is. It is the distraction we all need. I hope he didn't so, actually hurt this I was child. Say, guilty or not guilty? Um, it appears that maybe the kid was hitting him and he turned around and hit the kid. I don't know. Um, I need to know. I need to still believe in Gritty, uh, who, if you're not familiar with Gritty, has become sort of the Philadelphia mascot of the working class um, and is just a great yeah. figure. So follow along as we discover what you're, really happened. You're right. Uh, it is Gritty. so Philly. Peter, you're all geared up there. I'm all yeah. excited. Um, my colleague David Graham from The Atlantic did a very nice piece uh, that talked about while we're all obsessed with impeachment, actual news is being made. The Trump administration no. is quietly doing things that are really important and going to affect your lives. Agriculture Department came out with an announcement how they're going to roll back uh, Obama-era nutritional standards. Yes. The president at um, For school, kids' meals for at school. For kids' meals, schools, yeah. school lunches. Uh, the president, when he was in Davos, um, let slip that he might cut back Medicare and uh, entitlement spending. So I think that we tend in the media to uh, gravitate towards the bright, shiny object and get obsessed with that. Right now it's impeachment. But uh, there is an administration that is still hard at work, and they're not distracted by impeachment, and actual things are happening. We should pay attention. There were uh, another rollback of environmental rules, and the president also said it's going to be harder for what do they call birth um oh yes uh, anchor babies this is the yeah. parlance, anchor, right but pregnant exactly. women who yeah. emigrate to the united states and then give birth to an american citizen right so that you're right a lot going on that was a good piece i saw that piece How well, not you, to Joe? mention not to mention another travel ban that's on the horizon uh more, and more judges right. and yes uh, yeah, yeah the list goes on um, i mean that's but, one reason i think mitch mcconnell wants to get this over with so quickly he wants to get back to confirming conservative federal judges well right. and i read a statistic that one in four federal judges one in four um federal judges is has been appointed by donald trump including many many who have been rated as not qualified by the american, by the bar, association. american bar association it's just been rubber stamp and assembly line again head on a pike will get people motivated um and in your defense, favorite story yeah, <laughs> sorry, bit distracted. Um, gritty, gritty is a is a great story. I hit a Philly fanatic is going to be a character witness. Um, but my favorite story is about uh, a group of kids who sued the government over climate change. Now their lawsuit, um, it was called. Uh, I didn't write it down, but it was a lawsuit that sued the government for not doing enough for climate change. Uh, the the judgment by the federal appeals court came out. They turned the kids down, but a federal judge wrote a scathing dissent who said that yes. By bringing this lawsuit, these children did not have standing. The law was not with them. But it does suggest and does put a highlight on the fact that the government has the absolute, the quote was, the absolute power to destroy the country by inaction on climate change. And I thought that on, on the heels of Greta Thunberg in uh, Davos uh, and the, the climate rallies around the country, the kids are fighting for their future. And I think they're all right. Well, uh, yes, and you stole my thunder, which was I was my favorite story was Greta Thunberg in Davos this week, which ties right in, into yours. I love the fact that this now 17-year-old girl, I guess we can still call her a girl, young woman, uh, has raised, has been able to get such a re response from not only Donald Trump, right, who said that uh, she was um, had anger management issues, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, of all people, <laughs> Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, said she ought to go to school, to college first, and get an economic degree. Then she might have something to say about climate change. <laughs> and then the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, called her a brat. I gotta Can say, I just say, whatever yeah. happened to the the quaint notion of punching at your own weight mm. instead of punching below your weight? Yeah, I mean, but all the cool kids are punching down these days. So, and I thought Greta Thunberg's response was simply, "You don't need a college degree to know that we are destroying the planet. Climate change is really having an impact. Look at the glaciers disappearing. You don't need a college degree to know that's something we ought to do or do something about." So I. I just salute her. I think she's great. And the more she stirs it up, the better. And we thank you, Peter and Ginger and Joe. Thanks so much for today. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this is the Bill Press Pod. Uh, please subscribe to it. Uh, wherever you go to podcasts, uh, sign up for the Bill Press Pod. 
And instead of a parting shot today, we're going to leave you with something very special, and that are the closing remarks of the lead Democratic impeachment manager, Congressman Adam Schiff, in front of the United States Senate on Thursday evening, making, uh, in effect, there's one more day to go, but making the closing case, closing arguments for the Democrats' case to, he has been impeached, but to remove Donald Trump from office. Here's Congressman Adam Schiff. This brings me to the last point I want to make tonight, which is when we're done, we believe that we will have made the case overwhelmingly of the president's guilt. That is, he's done what he's charged with. He withheld the money, he withheld the meeting, he used it to coerce Ukraine to do these political investigations. He covered it up. He obstructed us. He's trying to obstruct you. And he's violated the Constitution. But I want to address one other thing tonight. Okay, he's guilty. Okay, he's guilty. Does he really need to be removed? Does he really need to be removed? We have an election coming up. Does he really need to be removed? He's guilty. You know, is there really any doubt about this? I mean, do we really have any doubt about the facts here? Does anybody really question whether the president is capable of what he's charged with? No one is really making the argument, Donald Trump would never do such a thing. Because of course we know that he would, and of course we know that he did. It's a somewhat different question, though, to ask, okay, it's pretty obvious, whether we can say it publicly or we can't say it publicly, we all know what we're dealing here with this president. But does he really need to be removed? And this is why he needs to be removed. Donald Trump chose Rudy Giuliani over his own intelligence agencies. He chose Rudy Giuliani over his own FBI director. He chose Rudy Giuliani over his own national security advisors. When all of them were telling him this Ukraine 2016 stuff is kooky, crazy Russian propaganda, he chose not to believe them. He chose to believe Rudy Giuliani. That makes him dangerous to us, to our country. That was Donald Trump's choice. Now, why would Donald Trump believe a man like Rudy Giuliani over a man like Christopher Wray? Okay? Why would anyone in their right mind believe Rudy Giuliani over Christopher Wray? Because he wanted to, and because what Rudy was offering him was something that would help him personally. And what Christopher A. was offering him was merely the truth. What Christopher Ray was offering him was merely the information he needed to protect his country and its elections. But that's not good enough. What's in it for him? What's in it for Donald Trump? This is why he needs to be removed. Now, you may be asking, how much damage can he really do in the next several months until the election? A lot. A lot of damage. Now, we just saw last week a report that Russia tried to hack or maybe did hack Burisma. Okay? I don't know if they got in. I'm trying to find out. My colleagues on the Intel Committee, House and Senate, we're trying to find out, did the Russians get in? What are the Russian plans and intentions? Well, let's say they got in. And let's say they start dumping documents to interfere in the next election. Let's say they start dumping some real things they hacked from Burisma. Let's say they start dumping some fake things they didn't hack from Burisma, but they want you to believe they did. Let's say they start blatantly interfering in our election again to help Donald Trump. Can you have the least bit of confidence that Donald Trump will stand up to them and protect our national interest over his own personal interest? You know you can't, which makes him dangerous to this country. You know you can't. 
You know you can't count on him. None of us can. None of us can. What happens if China got the message? Now you can say, well, he's just joking. Of course, he didn't really mean China should investigate the Bidens. You know that's no joke. Now maybe you could have argued three years ago when he said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, hack Hillary's emails. Maybe you could give him a freebie and say he was joking. But now we know better. Hours after he did that, Russia did, in fact, try to hack Hillary's emails. There's no mulligan here when it comes to our national security. So what if China does overtly or covertly start to help the Trump campaign? You think he's going to call him out on it? Or you think he's going to give him a better trade deal on it? Can any of us really have the confidence that Donald Trump will put his personal interests ahead of the national interest? Is there really any evidence in this presidency that should give us the ironclad confidence that he would do so? You know you can't count on him to do that. That's the sad truth. You know you can't count on him to do that. The American people deserve a president they can count on to put their interest first. To put their interest first. Colonel Vindman said, here right matters. Here right matters. Well, let me tell you something. If right doesn't matter, if right doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how good the Constitution is. It doesn't matter how brilliant the framers were. It doesn't matter how good or bad our advocacy in this trial is. It doesn't matter how well written the oath of impartiality is. If right doesn't matter, we're lost. If the truth doesn't matter, we're lost. Framers couldn't protect us from ourselves if right and truth don't matter. And you know that what he did was not right. You know, that's what they do in the old country that Colonel Vindman's father came from, or the old country that my great-grandfather came from or the old countries that your ancestors came from, or maybe you came from. But here, right is supposed to matter. It's what's made us the greatest nation on earth. No constitution can protect us. Right doesn't matter anymore. And you know, you can't trust this president do what's right for this country. You can trust he will do what's right for Donald Trump. He'll do it now. He's done it before. He'll do it for the next several months. He'll do it in the election if he's allowed to. This is why if you find him guilty, you must find that he should be removed. Because right matters. Because right matters. And the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost. <laughs>